Radio Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stretton, happy to bring you this podcast again today, irrespective of where you are. Today we get the opportunity to talk to Andy. Though Andy's no longer an active member of the police force, he's going to discuss with us how a lived experience of suicide has changed his perspective on what we need to do about this epidemic in Australia. Andy has witnessed tragedy. He was the guy that came to give news of tragedy But like us all, he never believed that he would receive the call himself. The loss of his talented son, Glenn, has given him new insights and perspectives on the issue, and it's a privilege to hear his eloquent, wise and insightful view on his lived experience and its subsequent impact. Well, good afternoon, Andy. Good afternoon. Thanks for um, spending some time with us on Roses Radio today on our on our podcast. We're very happy to have you share your story with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. You've had a um, a very varied uh, career. You've done a lot of amazing things. Uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in exploring with you up front is your career with the police force. Uh, you spent about 16 years, was it, with yep. the police force? Yeah, six, 16 years. Yes. Could you tell me a little bit about the, the attitudes that the police force have, certainly when you were there, so we may not be able to speak to attitudes today, but certainly when you were there, what was the attitudes towards suicide? Certainly, you're right. I started in the mid-70s, so attitudes generally were very different, and yep. uh, I'm pleased to say that I've seen that it's come a long way. Yes. Since then, 
Um, back in those days, when, when I first started, the, the senior police that you looked up to were very blasé about it. They um, saw it as a, uh, a mental illness. It was regularly linked, linked with being sick. Um, uh, he was obviously very sick, and that was the inference was, and, and openly was said, uh, that they were mentally ill. Um, and as, as a consequence of that sort of lead, I think having gone, having to attend, you know, several numerous probably over that sixteen years, I too built up an immunity to it, and and um, I guess for me personally, built a wall. What, what do you mean by that? How did you build up an immunity to it? Well, it it really came. There was no specific training back then on it. It was just another job um, you had to go and do if you effectively if you drew the short straw, and particularly in your junior service, you were going to cop the the the, the short straw. Um, so, for me, it was a way of how do I protect myself from this? I mean, I was particularly upset even with just uh, natu- people who had died from natural circumstances upset me to see some of the scenes that I saw in in what was obvious and apparent suicides um, was deeply concerning, deeply affected affected by it and I had to build up build a wall to protect myself effectively uh, as we said earlier there's no there was no counseling or, or um, assistance with it in those days. It was just um, uh, senior police would, would treat it in a very blase way and it's a get on with it, get over it. And just to give people perspective, how old were you when you first encountered um, a suicide experience? I was, I was still in the, in the police cadets that, that existed then and I'd have been 17. I wasn't, I wasn't 18, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, what... Did it um, so? What what attitudes and beliefs did you carry on from that particular period of time uh, when it came to the whole subject matter of suicide and suicide prevention? I, I must admit, I became like those leaders that I had in my early service. I just had to become blasé about it. I had had to become hardened to it. Um, but I must admit, I was always very conscious in being careful how I dealt with people, with the relatives and, and others affected by it. Um, so you experienced that where you had to go out and talk to people who were now bereaved by someone who had taken their life? Yes, well, every, every um, death in the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, that was going to be a coroner's matter if you couldn't have a doctor sign a certificate with a cause of death, and some of those were... were was sometimes dubious in my opinion but uh, then it became a matter for the coroner so we had to attend the scene uh, we had to collect the evidence we had to prepare the paperwork we then had to um, have the, the body formally identified at the mortuary and even to the extent of that we had to attend every post-mortem yeah. uh, identify that body to the the government doctor and then collect samples and uh, take them away for analysis if required, and and through that finish the complete the paperwork that would then go to the coroner for a decision. So, in that process, you're obviously talking to the bereaved at the time, later, uh, through through the whole process. Anybody that was involved, and uh, if you weren't there yourself, on other occasions, you would get um, you would have to go and tell relatives that um, 
somebody else had uh, taken the decision. So. For a long period of time leading up to um, you know, the 70s and 80s, um, the whole area of suicide was considered to be a criminal act. Was there a prevailing feeling amongst the police force that, in fact, someone had committed a crime? I know you're very strong on that now, and we'll explore that a little bit later, but was it considered to be a, a criminal offence? It, it had ceased to become a cri- criminal offence, but, but I believe there were still a lot of people that had looked at it that way. Yeah. And um, I think there are still people around to this day that um, view it as an offence, um, whether that be through their their personal beliefs or, or I pick it up even in their communication and the, and the language they use that um, plenty still see it as, um, as an offence. And I think, in fact, the last time it was... The last state to decriminalise in Australia was Western Australia, and that was, I believe, in the 80s. So it was still, in some places, considered a a, a criminal offence, but it it wasn't actioned, no, as such. How do you feel about the expression committed suicide now? We're going to talk about your lived experience in in a little bit, but I know you're very strong on this idea that we have to shift the language around suicide. Yeah, look, I... I would say it's a pet hate of mine. I I feel really strongly about it. I understand why people use it, uh, where the history comes from, but the two things that um, uh, came to me very quickly after learning of Glenn's passing was uh, the word committed was used and I instantly linked it to a criminal offence and I couldn't um, reconcile that with with my son. I know it's a uh, people can understand from a family part of, point of view, but that that really cut me. And the other one that that we got very quickly was, well, he was obviously mentally ill. Yeah, wow. And I have a real struggle with that as well because I'm sure many suicides are reactionary, as opposed to there are certainly some that are a consequence of many that are a consequence of mental illness, but I believe there are just as many, if not more, that are a reaction and. Um, Unfortunately, people make a decision that uh, they that we know is a, a permanent decision uh, a, to a temporary problem, a, a permanent yeah. solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. Um, so that were the two things, and, and I think we've got to change our views on both of those for sure. Your son, Glenn, uh, tell us a little bit about him. He, he was an amazing sportsman. He was much loved. He was a very talented young guy. Yeah, Glenn, Glenn was a... a, a um, your typical uh, Australian male, I guess. He was a, uh, as a kid, he was he was, he was very likable. But he was he was kind, caring, extremely active. Um, as you, as you said, we've talked about before. He were he he certainly wasn't one for academic endeavour, but he excelled in uh, as an athlete and a sportsman. Um, certainly, he at the school he attended uh, in year eleven. He represented that school in seven different sports and open, open and, and state level. Uh, at the same time as being in the top ten Ironman for his age, uh, in the in the state in the country actually, and uh, regularly competing he was a sponsored longboard surfer as well. So he was extremely active, always outside. Uh, very happy young guy. Uh, as some people, I've said to a few people. He was probably often or sometimes referred to as a, a cheeky young larrikin, but that was that was his nature. He was very happy and outgoing and just uh, and active. 
And he was 18 years of age when he left to go away and to live somewhere else. Up until that particular point in time, you hadn't seen any signs, any signals that there was any reason to be concerned for his mental state or for um, how he was feeling about life in general? No, no. Outside of the usual adjustment adjustment that has to happen when you leave school. Yeah. And certainly he'd been the centre of attention at school. And entering out into the workforce, he had to adjust, make some adjustments there, as I, as we've all done. Yes. Um, but he seemed to be but, coping well with that. Yeah, but nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, he he did come to a point where he got himself involved with a uh, a young lady, and and once again he found himself in a tug of war there uh, that we uh, that we chose to to step out of, um, and. She and her family convinced him to move away from from his home and uh, to in another state, to, to South Australia, like the other end of the country. Um, and that also dragged him away from the ocean and his surfing. And certainly we had conversations in the, in the weeks leading up to his decision about uh, where he was going to go surfing and how he was going to continue his surfing. That had become a problem for him. Okay. And certainly... Um, he was aware that the door was always open at home if that's what he needed to do. Yet he still chose to to leave. Uh, he and so he left all the things that he loved, including his family, and headed off to Adelaide. Yep. And mm. what happened, do you think, in Adelaide that changed his perspective on life? He his his final communications and some other material that the the police and coroner made us aware of um, uh, proved that that relationship had broken down. Okay. And in his his own writing, he had tried extremely hard to to maintain that and do the best he could. And uh, uh, he had uh, received communication from her that day that was negative and he said he, he then in his in his own written words formed the decision that that this is what he was um, needed to do so you got a call or you got a visit from the police um, one night I believe that's right yeah that, that night. tell us a little bit about that experience Given that, that you were a police officer and you went to see others and all of a sudden a police officer turns up at your door. A wide range of emotions in a very short time. Um, I've, I think probably everybody naturally, the first thing is, no, you've got the wrong person. Yeah. Can't possibly be, right? And, you know, knowing, knowing the type of kid Glenn had been, never, never crossed our mind. So that was that was the first thing was no, that's not right. And then once they convince you that it is in fact correct, there, there I, I found myself torn between a personal um, interpretation of it, and then I was standing with Megan, my wife, and his mother. Um, so you then you're, you're flicking between yourself and 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 your family, wondering where our daughter Jamie was still 
she was only 15, she was living at home, where's she, we need to involve her in that, and just trying to process the same, that whole thing. Interestingly enough, it was two very, very young police who came to see us, and that was a consequence of um, uh, their the eagerness of both Queensland and South Australian police to advise us. Um, The girlfriend and her family had chosen not to supply our particulars to the the police and where we lived, uh, even though they had promoted Glenn's passing on social media. So the, the text message world and the social media, as it was then, wasn't Facebook, I can't think of what it was called, had gone wild and um, everybody knew. In fact, it was, it was through the schoolies time that it happened. Glenn had been at schoolies at the Gold Coast the year before and we were told later that they'd played two songs in Glenn's memory at schoolies on the Gold Coast before the police had been able to get to us and tell us. They were extremely concerned that somebody was going to ring us up and say, hey, look, we're really, you know, the parents of one of these kids was going to ring us and say, sorry to hear about Glenn, what can we do? How Uh, did they find you? In the end, um, a young girl in Caloundra on the Sunshine Coast who knew Glenn um, through um, Christian surfers, in fact, received one of these text messages and in her, her reaction to disbelief was to contact a pastor and say do you know anything about this could this be right and that and the pastor said the only way I can find that out is to contact the police so he rang the police in in Cloundra and there was a already an awareness out that they needed to find us and there was a sense of relief when that had happened and they were later told us that the, the radio message went out whoever's closest to this address get there straight away and this is the job you've got to do and these two poor young guys turned up and in in the racing of all that emotion about whether it was right how's Megan how's Jamie what am I thinking I even found myself feeling sorry for these two young guys having done it yeah so many times but you know initially with um senior supervision these two kids turned up looking at each other with no real clue and obviously the answers that were put the questions that were pouring from us they had no real answer to which made it hard for them and I did later recognize that and say thanks very much and hmm. you talk about being tossed from sadness to anger from guilt to blame you know both self and others what did that all mean once once the once the police leave and go in, in, inside and try and process it um two things we found one we had we knew we had to tell others also knew that well big tough for me I didn't need support but Megan and Jamie did so we had to get out that out there and then on reflection the process that starts from there and you know for me quite frankly took the next nine months um is a process of guilt blame shame and and the shame and things go back to the the, the criminality in it, uh, the blame game uh, leads to shame, certainly feeling like a failure. Um, all of those things run through your mind and some of that's your own doing. I believe some of it's from from your history, from your upbringing and, and things as well that um, you form those opinions and over time learn to, to 
fight them and turn them upside down, really, but, yeah. I'm guessing some of the reactions, and I know of a couple of examples, some of the reactions of other people to what happened probably didn't help with many of those sort of broad emotions that you were feeling? Yes, look, the one that that stands out and, and, and I do talk about is that we had some close friends come around quite quickly and this was nine o'clock at night that this was happening um and they came they came quite quickly but the first let me say direct family member that i contacted uh drove for three hours straight away dropped everything fantastic drove up uh to be of support to us and when they arrived the first comment that was made was to me privately was this is no good at all is it but we will fix it up quickly and quietly and that just cut me to the core um luckily i didn't realize but but megan i thought it was the two of us talking but megan was there as did hear it as well and it just put a whole new shadow over the dark cloud over the whole thing and in fact, we did find a way to excuse ourselves and try and make some sense of that and, and how we were going to move forward with it. So, yeah. Where do you think that came from? I did, I did see... We, we did see some subsequent behaviours from that same person who that indicated to me that their mindsets and beliefs were... were uh, deeply rooted in the the old, pretty much ancient beliefs of uh, what suicide was, and once again the offence type nature of it, and the offensive nature of it, um, and and that was their their reaction as a consequence of that um, belief. I, I believe it was just his belief systems were such that that's that's how he viewed what had happened. Someone else made a comment about their birthday. What was the story around that? Oh, another. That was twelve months later. Um, another close relative um, uh, had their birthday the day after Glenn's death, and because this is all happening at nine, ten, eleven o'clock at night. We did choose not to tell a lot of people who weren't in our close direct circle about what had happened until the next day. Mm. It was easier to ring them in the morning and and, and talk to them then. Uh, So this person was told about Glenn's passing on their birthday. And 12 months later, I was told that um, when I thought I was doing the right thing and contacting to wish them a happy birthday... The reaction was, oh, my birthday will never be the same again. Glenn's ruined my birthday forever. And I said, but why, how can you say that? And I was told that whilst he had passed on the day before, they were advised on the day, so that had ruined their birthday forever. Shame on Glenn. There were, uh, there were people, however, I suppose, uh, you know, that rather than... Uh, adopting some of those maybe stereotypical or old-fashioned or uh, ancient beliefs as you talk about it did display some amazing love and kindness as well 
absolutely. And I guess one of, one of the big takes for us, and, and having spoken to other people who have been in our, our situation, one of, one of the big learnings was that a lot of people who you think are your closest friends um, and supporters and people who would who would you who you would anticipate might be there at a time of crisis yeah were conspicuous by their absence um, I reconcile myself with the fact that some of them probably um, knew us in a happier time and, and, and had a happier picture and didn't know how to handle uh, this situation. On the other hand, there were people who were at best acquaintances through business or community generally, certainly not people who would necessarily classify in the friend bucket, who just sort of stepped up and, and um, were there, um, would keep in touch, uh, didn't necessarily need to spend a lot of time, just wanted to touch base. There was obviously the people who bring food and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, and I guess the standout and, and, and the story I've told many other people is of a lady who was um, simply a... She was the... Well, I shouldn't say simply. She was the wife of a business coach that we'd been using for a while. And she she arrived at our house one day shortly afterwards... Um, I'd actually, it was probably one of the first times I'd left the house and gone to the front gate to farewell uh, a visitor. And I opened the, the wooden gate and here across the um, other side of the road was, was, this, was this lady, Dee. Um, she was in her husband's big black V10 Tourag thing and, <laughs> and she, was, she was dressed to the nines as she always is. She was always high heels, perfectly groomed. Immaculate. Yeah. <laughs> and she's at the back of this car and she's collecting up um, st- stuff out of the back of it. And you could see it was buckets. There was one or two buckets and mops and a broom and all this cleaning materials. And she's juggling it and trying to close the back of the car and walk across the road and up the driver, which is a bit steep, all in a high heels with all, with his hands overflowing with his gear. And she gets to the gate and I said, Dude, what are you doing? She said, I'm here to clean your house. And I looked at her and I said, OK. She said, yeah, I just went and bought this from the supermarket. I said, OK. Knowing full well that, that she had a, a housekeeper at home, I said, do you know how to use it? She said, no, but we'll work it out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that lady came every day for the next two weeks to our house, stripped the beds, washed all the sheets, put them in the dryer, remade the bed, did the washing up, dusted, vacuumed, mopped floors, cleaned the toilets. We had a bit of a laugh at that. And she became quite efficient with all this gear that she didn't know how to use before she went. It felt like sending her husband an invoice and saying, listen, I've saved your costs on a cleaner. <laughs> we didn't because it obviously it was a, a great, just a, a personal thing to do um, that entertained us as well. There was some humour in her trying to learn how to use this stuff and uh, she had a, a, a European background and, and she also supplied an endless, or made an endless supply of this Turkish coffee. Wow, the spoon stood up in it. It was amazing. Uh, but, you know, for, for all the people who didn't know what to do, we had people like Dee and others who would just step up and, and do quite amazing things. 
It takes enormous courage to do that, doesn't it? Like she didn't know you as a family um, to any great degree. And for her just to turn up like that and to just assume that that's what you needed and she was going to make that contribution, Mm. it does take a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it? Amazing. Our kids, the kids went to school together. Well, not together, but they were at the same school and they they knew each other. Uh, They certainly weren't close or anything. Um, We'd met Dee a couple of times at at, at, uh, events that her husband had organised, but that was the extent of it. I must say, when when those two weeks were up and we'd said, look, it's okay, thanks very much, it's been really good, and and I talked to her about it, her reaction, her answer was, I didn't know what to do, but I had to do something. And that that's what she decided to do, and I have to say we will be forever grateful for that. It was just um, an amazing effort in, in the middle of so many negative things, yeah. You described that period of time when Dee came over as being like you're in a fog and and you just wanted to stay in bed and not get out and uh, hide away from the world, I suppose. Yes, yeah, certainly the f- what, what feels like a fog, uh, or you can only describe as a fog, de- descends fairly quickly. Um, you know, there's a, there's a fog of confusion, there's a fog of all the other things that are going on around you uh, we certainly found ourselves becoming insular um, I think part part of that when I look back now was the guilt blame and all the other things that you have to process um, we had I had a legal fight to entertain there'd been certain documents delivered to our solicitor before we'd even repatriated his body back to Queensland and had a funeral. Um, so with all those things going on, there were times when we just wanted to... We did. We just had to close the door, the two of us, and, and just went to bed. Um, you know, at other times, you had to find the, the strength to do the things that have to be done, as everybody knows. And you just it, it was a battle to find the strength to do those things, much less anything else. Um, and that, that went on for, for, for quite a period. It was, uh, How long? Difficult. It was probably a good six months. Mm. The legal battle went on for 12. I didn't, um, I didn't work for the next 12 months. Um, Megan certainly went back to work after a little while. Um, there was a period probably, I think what jerked me back into gear, so to speak, it's probably not the right choice of words, but um, it was about six... It was about six months in and Jamie, our 15-year-old daughter, Glenn's sister, walked up the hallway one day to to the bedroom and she had a pile of papers in one hand and a checkbook in the other. And I said, what are you doing, love? She said, well, you know you've got these bills to pay. People have been calling, We even I know that. She said, so I found these bills, I've written the checks out, I only need you to sign them. And I was amazed at what she'd done. Um, And I think it was there that I had to think, well, if Jamie can realise that, then I need to start to get some other things in place as well. 
And that's when your healing process really started. And what role did standby play in that? Because I think standby response were were very helpful for you as well. Absolutely. Um, our doctor, uh, who family doctor, who was also a, you know, a friend, um, somebody else that we did we um, informed that night, rang him, and he came around and just to see if you know he can sleep a little bit. And a the nurse at his practice, unbeknownst to us had lost her husband to suicide and he found himself almost in despair as well having known Glenn so well and, and pretty much all his life and he turned to to the nurse to for ideas on how he could help us and it was that nurse who um, told him about standby and I believe in fact that she contacted standby and we were also told to ring somebody and a couple of weeks later, yeah, Jill Fisher and, and another lady from Standby came around and saw us. And through their experience with so many people who have lived this, walked this path, and and Jill's extensive research, they were able to start to give some options for what um, what might have been going on. Some you know, for the for the millions of questions that are running through your mind. Uh, and the concerns you have, they were able, the first people who could start to help with some plausible responses for us to think about. And also at that time, um, Jill said to me, vividly remember her saying, you don't, you won't want to hear this now. It was just before she left. But at some time in the future, you might like to think about the fact that this was Glenn's decision and Glenn's action. You'll go through all the blame and the guilt and all that, but at the end of the day, the decision and action to end his own life was Glenn's and Glenn's alone. She was right. I didn't want to hear it at the time, but uh, it was probably yeah, between that six and nine-month mark that I started to think about that again. Um... It was a really defining moment, wasn't it? For me, for me on, on it was. reflection now. Yes, know? yeah. That the that the seed had been planted for me to use when when my mind obviously thought it was appropriate, and I probably went through a, another three months after that of of just keeping it to myself and thinking about it and seeing if if I could reconcile myself to that, which I which I eventually did, and that's when the you know the fog really cleared, not cleared, but lifted. And I, uh, I felt like I was starting to get in a better place. And once, once I improved, I, I then um, found what I thought might be the right moment to to suggest it to Megan. She hadn't recalled Jill saying that. She might not have heard it. But once I once I had my head around it, I thought, well, I'll find the right time, and hopefully she'll be open to it too. And, and that's what we've worked on, and and that's how we've been able to progress to um, where we are today. I mean. Suicide has a dramatic impact on families. It has a dramatic impact on relationships. It has in my family. And I know in many other families it's had a massive impact. How did you and Megan work together as a team on this? I hate to use the word lucky, but we were probably lucky or blessed in the fact that before this had happened, we'd, we were... We were one of those strange couples who can work together in business and and through our whole relationship we've always had this thing where when one was weak the other one always seemed to be strong 
and vice versa. There was always somebody there to um, to carry the the load and, and support the other. And this was pretty much no different. There was those first few months where we were both in the hole, so to speak, but it wasn't long before... And, and Jamie, our daughter, it was interesting that she could step up at that time. She was a... For a 15-year-old, she was amazingly strong. Yeah. Um, and that said, it took her three years before she accepted and, and, and reacted to it. And... Um, she started her grieving process effectively three years later. Whether that was because we were okay, I don't know, but I'll never know. But um, certainly she was strong at the time and that gave Megan and I the, the time to, um, to, to get ourselves um, moving forward. And the, telling somebody to get over it or move on is another one of my uh, pet hates, but we, uh, we found the strength to, um, to carry on. And uh, we've just always had that great relationship. It had, it did, I must say, lead to um, major fractures with our our wider family. Okay. Um, the the two people from my family that I talked about earlier, um, I certainly have no contact with now. I just haven't been able to reconcile that. I know I've got to forgive at some point, but it hasn't happened yet. And um, pretty much the same for Megan too, because some of her family were um, less than pleasant with their comments around that time too. Um, in fact, sometimes I feel more for her than for me. She had somebody um, actually outside the funeral, at the outside the church after the funeral, brush her and say, "At least we can keep our children alive." You just. I mean, <laughs> you just look sometimes and say... It's staggering. ...what's going on with people. Yeah, so... Um, but look, we've, we, we, we've, we've probably experienced... The, I can't say the whole gamut. Ours is not exclusive. But we've, we've, we've had wide-ranging experience in this whole uh, episode. I um, must admit, I, I typed on my phone just... Uh, a couple of months ago when I get thoughts now I just type them on my phone and I put you know 10 years on it's been it's just gone 10 years now and um, 10 years on and the roller coaster continues and I'm sure you have that experience too um, that there will always be times when something will trigger um, be it sight, smell, memory whatever um, but the best we can do is learn to work our way through those uh, support each other at that time and that's I find myself now expanding that from not just Megan and I and Jamie and, and our family but I, I now look at it as um, community generally you know we with the, with the experiences we've had instead of being so negative about it all and so destructive with it we really just need to learn to, to reach out to each other and be more aware of each other. And just, you know, I'd, I'd like to, certainly like to see people um, uh, get some education or in just noticing changes in those around them. Uh, maybe knowing what some of the early signs might be 
and then being able to ask the question, you know, are you okay is a great thing. Uh, my question would be, what do you say next? What uh, do you say next? The first thing that, that comes to mind to me is, are you considering taking your own life? People find find that a really hard question to ask, and, I, and it is. I, I no longer struggle with it, and I think the mm. more people think about it, the more it's a vital question. And if the answer is yes in any way or in any indication, then you have to help them get the appropriate help and assistance, I believe. You've just got to know there's plenty of services out there, and obviously Lifeline's the one that stands out. Uh, Beyond Blue's another one. And from there to me, I believe the next question should be, what is it that I can do to best help you? They're not, they're not hard questions to remember, I don't think. Um, and I also believe with the stigma uh, associated with suicide, people often told us that the people, the friends who, who, who disappeared so to speak, and we had people even cross the road deliberately, you could see it, and they admitted to it later because they didn't know what to say. Mm. Um, Megan says to them now, saying the wrong thing is better than saying nothing. And I would I would say there is there is no wrong thing. And if you don't know what to say, hello is a really good start. How are you will seem like a dumb question, but it allows them to open up a conversation. And if you want to go any further from there, I'd go back to my previous question is, what is there or is there anything I can possibly do to be of help to you? Yeah. You know, if one of those three things doesn't start a conversation, then in my opinion, you've tried your best and probably you can't. But I believe any of those three things will get people talking. I guess you've answered the two questions that uh, we generally finish with um, on Rose's Radio and that is what does society need to change in terms of the way they deal with the whole subject area of suicide and secondly what is your key message I think you've covered both of those off uh, extremely well for us so thank you thank you very much for doing that your story's um, amazing mate your journey um, incredible Um, you, like many others, uh, have a, um, a deeper understanding now of this subject area and you are committed to doing something about it. And for that, we are very thankful. I know you do a lot of work and you mm. will continue to do a lot of work in this area yep. uh, to bring more awareness to the subject of suicide. Um, and it's a blessing to have people like you and others uh, involved um, in our community, uh, helping others to um, gather a, a greater understanding um, of suicide and the impact that it has on, on people. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. We do appreciate it. Thanks. And we, um, we hope that it touches the lives of uh, many others out there who have the, uh, the privilege of hearing it. Great, mate. Thank you. If silence keeps you I will break it for you.
In conclusion, we remember those we have lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. If you or someone that you know needs support, you should contact Lifeline, a phone and online crisis support network. The Suicide Callback Service, which provides professional counselling for those who are affected by suicide. Men's Line Australia, or the Kids Helpline, which works with children and teenagers from age 5 to 25, offering phone, web and email counselling and information for parents. In the event that you might like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean and their Voices of Insight Speakers Hub through speaking engagements in the local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean.com.au or 1300-411-461. Hey, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.